0: Let's pray. Father, again, we ask your blessings now as we think about this subject of maturity. Help us to be wise. Help us to be thoughtful. Help us to be uh, resolved to follow Christ all the days of our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. If I call a baby a baby, there is no insult involved. Peter, for example, in writing in 1 Peter chapter 2 says, As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So Peter says, if you're a baby, it's it's appropriate that you should desire milk. And when babies desire milk, they let everybody know. They're totally focused on getting that. And um, we will see later, when we look at the book of Hebrews, uh, that the author of Hebrews actually chastises people for still partaking of milk when they should be partaking of meat. And so there is it's appropriate if you're a baby to be called a baby. But if I call an adult a baby, you're acting like a baby, or don't be such a baby about that, then of course that's an insult. Again, Hebrews five, for by though for though this through this for for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. The first principles, the elementary principles of the oracles or the word of God. And you come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full-aged or mature. That is, those who by reason of use have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so maturity, as we said last talk, is perfection. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Maturity is to permeate every area of our lives. We could take any number of topics and, and focus on those. Today we're going to be talking about friendships in this talk. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. God, as I pointed out, puts us in, in this world, puts us in families, in churches, and puts us in association with other people, in friendships. A motivational speaker, Jim Rohn, said that we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. Do not be deceived, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Evil company corrupts good morals or good habits. Proverbs 17:17. 17, 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So we're going to just set that aside for a moment. We need friends, we have friends, and we're going to evaluate what kind of friends and what friends are doing for us or to us or against us. But I want to ask another question. Who are you? There's been much talk in recent years, uh, and it's certainly on the news every day, about identity politics, which are political arguments that focus upon the interests and the perspectives of groups with which people identify. This could be race or gender, age, sexual orientation, so forth. It is argued, it's argued now that you don't actually have to be a member of a particular group. Uh, according to this theory, in order to identify with that group. For example, a man can identify as a woman. A woman can identify, a white woman can identify as a black uh, woman. The sky is really the limit. Um, your body is basically like an, your automobile. It's there. You can drive it fast or slow or park it. You can do whatever you want to it. It's just a machine. And then your mind is what controls. Uh, your personhood, your identity. So that's the theory, and it's a thoroughly anti-biblical theory. And by the way, I want to recommend a book to you that I read a couple of months ago. It is outstanding. It's by Nancy Piercy, uh, and it's called Love Thy Body. It is is excellent. It's one of the best books I've read in a long time. It's one of the best pro-life books that I've read in a long time. And so, so just an aside, but I'd really encourage you to... Get that, or it's available as an audio book as well. It's, it's quite profound. So these absurdities are rooted in a truth which, as the Apostle Peter says, untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. So there's a kernel of truth to this idea of us identifying with something or as something. When we ask the question, who are you? But people have taken that and twisted it. It is true that we have an identity which defines who we are. The Bible, for example, divides humanity into those who are in the first Adam and those who are in the second Adam. Which Adam do you identify with? Which one are you connected to? Where do you find your identity, in the first Adam or the second? And the outcome of these two, two groups, of course, the, is radically different. At the Olympic Games in Rio, Olympic divers David Budia and and Steele Johnson spoke of their identity uh, as they came onto the television. I was watching a a little bit of the Olympics, and that frankly scared me for a moment. Um, Standing on the platform prior to their dive, the two men quoted Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. They then bumped fist and executed a dive, which earned a silver medal for the U.S. team. Johnson, afterwards, said of Budia, "I learned so much from this guy about diving, about life, about faith, about being a man that I wouldn't uh, that I wouldn't be." Uh, that I wouldn't be where I am today without this guy teaching me along the way. Budia admitted that when he focuses on diving, he begins to define himself by that, which tends to make his mind crazy. And he, but both, but we both know that our. He said, both know that our identity is in Christ. Johnson shared a similar statement. He said, the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ, and not what the result of this competition is, just gave me peace, and it let me enjoy the contest. So I want to ask you today, do you identify first and foremost as being in Christ? Again, Pastor Jeffrey just spoke last week at our camp, and he had a lecture that says, you're not a victim You're a Christian. You identify as a victim. You identify as a Christian. Those are two radically different things. The Apostle Paul says that doing so is critical to how we live in this world. We don't simply do this individually, but as we're going to see, we do it in community. We do it with one another. And so it is impossible for anyone to mature in Christ uh, by themselves. You cannot do it alone. Just as we don't drift into godliness, we're not going to drift into this. So again, the question is, who are you? And I'd like to suggest that we could learn who you are. Uh, We could learn at least a lot about who you are by looking at the company that you keep. Who do you love to be around? Who do you hang out with? What do they talk about? What kind of language do they use? If I could just take your... You know two, three, four, five closest friends. If I'd never met you and I could just be around them for a while and, and extract this bit of information, I would already know a great deal about you how they dress, what kind of language they use. Do they love Jesus Christ? And how long did it take for me to figure that out? A minute, a day, a week. Now one of my pet peeves is to have a young person who is in uh, some kind of a, has a romantic interest in someone. Let's say a young lady and I ask her is he a Christian? And she gives this answer or something like it. I think so. I'm pretty sure or worse I hope so. What that means is no. If If you don't Know that almost immediately there's something terribly wrong here. Something terribly immature at the very least and maybe a lot worse. In fact, we could know who you are if we could again just spend time with the people that you keep company with. The company you keep is either a reflection of who you are or at the very least it is a reflection of who you would like to be. And so, uh, birds of a feather flock together. It happened uh, It happened some years at our camp. We've been having our youth camp for 11 years, and it's grown each year. We had about 150 this year, and I'm happy to say we didn't have this this year. But it's not on occasion. We have among the group will show up what I call bad boys uh, or the really cool girls. And then pretty quickly a little crowd begins to develop. Thankfully this has always in our experience always been a very small minority that we deal with. But the really bad boys there, next thing you know, he's got two other guys that are kinda of over to the side from the group. And then next you know, within another hour there's three girls that have gathered over there under the tree. And you can just see it. It just it ha it, and if anybody's ever taught school or anything like that, you know, it happens in classrooms with any group. Because They they spot each other and figure out, okay, there's there's somebody like me or somebody that I want to be like. And so, uh, given a little time and opportunity, uh, these wannabes will be like that person. And you're the same way. Who you hang around is who you are either like or who you want to be like. On the other hand, there are those who seek out godly companions. And we know them also by the company that they keep. Turns out that the company you keep gives us the most accurate answer to the question, Who are you? These same questions will apply to who you are attracted to when it comes time to marry. There is no closer companion than a husband or a wife. There is no greater influence over who you are and who you will become like. And so it is essential that you become like Christ first that you mature and you reflect Christ so that you attract that kind of a friend, both in a general sense as well as in that most intimate sense with a spouse. You need to first be like Christ so that that's the kind of person you attract. Now, let me back up and let's do a little theology here. Theology is underneath everything. Ideas have consequences. What does God say about the company we keep? A theology of friends, if you will. Well, the Holy Trinity is a community, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal community, an eternal communion of love. Since the triune God made us in his image, he therefore made us to be in communion as well, to expand this Trinitarian community, communion. We were meant to be together and we were meant to be together in love and remember last hour I said love is about what sacrifice giving of yourself to other people that's what it means to love Adam was not created in isolation but in covenant with the triune God himself yet there was still something missing and thus God declared that it's not good for man to be alone image bearing demands that man like God live in community man's identity is essentially tied up in his relationships with others. It is impossible for a person in isolation from others to show forth the image of God in its fullness. He must have communion with other people. We are incomplete without others. And so it matters not just I'm making a little bit different statement here. It matters whether we keep company. And it matters what kind of company we keep. And there are three basic responses that we can have to God's call for us to live in communion with others. God has said it's not good to be alone. And now we're going to respond to that. The first is a response of rebellion by way of isolation. We all know people like this. Thus, Adam's first response to God after he sinned was to hide himself. I notice as a pastor in a church, all pastors see this. We've got families, they're rocking along, they're, they're in fellowship, they, they're regular in their participation and involvement, and then all of a sudden, something happens, and they stop showing up, and they start missing once a month, and twice a month, and three times a month, and the Water pump went out on the car, and this happened. and All those things really happen, of course, in life, and sometimes those are legitimate things, but you start to notice this family who used to be this way, now, or maybe it's just an individual. Something else is going on. There's a reason we start withdrawing. We don't want to be with the people of God. It becomes uncomfortable. There's something else. I may not know what it is, but most of the time... That is a sure sign this isolation is something wrong. Part of the self-deception of sin is the siren call to be our own God, to always do it our way. And so this isolation can actually happen while people are present. They can still say, I'm going to do my own thing. I'll come and I'll participate when I want to, I won't when I don't want to. It's all about me, what's in it for me, not what's in it for others. I'll decide on a case by case basis. Anybody here ever have to do something you don't want to do? I do it every day, don't you? I hope so. And aren't you glad that you do? You know, you may be exhausted at the end of the day. You may think, you know, I don't want another day like I had today. This was a really hard day. Or I went through something that was really difficult, but I'm glad I did it. I'm thankful and life is that way. But we have sometimes a lot of Christians who don't live that way as Christians. They they think it's all about them and they do what they want to do when they want to do it. And there's no sense of obligation to something bigger than themselves. A sacrifice. Well, this isn't really what I enjoy. I got to be honest. I go to I look, I 63 years old go to youth camp. I don't like it. If you ask me two months before, do you want to go to youth camp, my answer is almost always, eh, not really. I really like my bed. I like being with my wife. I like being at my house. I like, those are things I like. You want to go sleep on a bunk, in a cabin, away from home, and eat camp food, and hang out with teenagers? Um, Well, that's not what I would pick. But you know what? I go every year, and I'm always glad I did. I'm always glad I did something I didn't want to do that wasn't all about me. It was about other people. And what I find out is when I give to other people, they always give back way more than I gave. And that's what the Bible teaches, right? Give, and it'll be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. That's God works in these paradoxes. Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he rages against all wise judgment, or all mature judgment. The problem with trying to be God is that the job is way too big for us, so in order to maintain control, then we have to shrink our world to eliminate all threats, Eventually, everything becomes a threat, and thus our world must continue to shrink. Everything out there becomes the enemy, and we begin to speculate about what everybody else is up to. We need one another more than we think. In fact, you need everybody that God's put you in relationship with. I'll just say to you as a church, God put you here, and he put everybody else here because he thought you needed each other. And you have something to learn from everybody, young, old, male, female. You have something to learn if you'll pay attention. We're here to become a little bit more like each other. Now, maybe we learn positively, learn negatively. You know, on the way home from church, you say, Did you see how Johnny talked back to his dad? That wasn't good. You should never do that. So we learned from Johnny and his dad, or did you see how excellent Johnny responded to his dad? That's what I'm talking about. So there's a lot of ways that we learn from one another. Um, So as we isolate ourselves, still in this first response, we find it increasingly hard to feel loved because we've forgotten how to love. Well, I don't fit in, and the people there don't like me. Well, be likable. Get busy serving, and they will. It's not about you, it's about something bigger than you. That's what maturity is. Love is always about others, always about sacrifice for others, always about meeting the needs of others, even before we meet our own needs. Loving God and loving our neighbors, again, are the two greatest commandments. Denying ourselves is the starting place of following Christ, right? And if it's the starting place, it's also how we continue to follow Christ. He gave himself to the church because he loved her. It's only in losing our lives that we gain it, and more specifically, we lose our lives as we give it for others. Greater love has no man than this, and he lay down his life for his friends. Sometimes isolation begins with statements like I just mentioned, I don't fit in, or everybody's mean to me. You ever hear kids say that? Well, if you're a Christian and you can't find anybody to fit in with, then I'd like to suggest that the problem might be you. Might. It is your responsibility to be kind and friendly and hospitable and much more. Now, that's the first response, isolation, pull back. I don't want, to, I don't want anybody around me. Second response to God's call for us to live in community is to choose to live in bad company. A communion of rebels is not a communion of love, but rather a band of fools. I remember a Lorraine Bettner in his book, Reform Doctrine of Predestination, has an illustration in there where he talks about pirates on a ship have fellowship They're pirates on a ship. And they cook and they laugh and they drink and they party and they work and they do all these things together, but the whole time they're still rebels. They're still criminals. So in that sense... The fellowship is bad. It enables them to do bad things, to be thieves. The book of Proverbs lays out a stark comparison, as we mentioned, between those who carefully surround themselves with wise or mature companions versus those who just hang out. I want to just go hang out with my friends. I want to just hang out. That's usually not the best best thing. Proverbs 12, 26, the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Got that? The righteous. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I'm committed to following Christ. But I'm just going to go hang out with these friends who are not. So he says, the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. You think? well, I'm going to go be a good influence on them. And next thing you know, the opposite has happened proverbs twenty two twenty four through twenty five make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man, do not go lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Your soul is at stake here proverbs twenty eight seven whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father proverbs twenty nine three whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots waste his wealth. Moreover, when we keep company with those who are not seeking the Lord, as I mentioned earlier, we become more like them. 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. When you see that in the Bible, pay attention. That means you could be deceived. You could be fooled. You can deceive yourself. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good habits. Your two best friends as I mentioned, or five, or whatever, are the best predictors of where you will be in ten years. They are going to lead you somewhere. They're going to lead you up, or they're going to lead you down. They're going to lead you into the dark, or the light, or life, or death. The Bible offers powerful and serious warnings about keeping companions who would lead us away from God. First Corinthians 5.11 But now I have written to you, Not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral. You got any friends that are sexually immoral? Or covetous? Or an idolater? Or a reviler? Or a drunkard? Or an extortioner? Not even to eat with such a person. Are you ready to follow the word of God there? That's what he called you to. That's what, that's the path to maturity. Have you ever considered how people come to fall away from the faith? They do it one step at a time. Little things. Nobody just gets up one day and runs and jumps off the cliff. What do they do? They inch closer and closer and closer, and I'm not going to get too close because I know my history. Uh, I'll, I'll be on the floor in a second. But I'm just going to, I'm not going to get past the red zone here. What happens when a big puff of wind comes up and I fall off? What's the first thing I say to mom and dad? I didn't mean to. But you know what the Bible says? You've got to mean not to. That's different. Playing near the edge, you may not mean to. You think, I'm not going to fall off. I'll be okay. I'll hang out with these people who are, who are careless and scoffers and, and don't take the faith seriously I'm going to hang out with them, and I'm not going to fall. Beware, the Bible says, lest you fall. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't be fooled. You will fall away from the faith like other people fall away from the faith one friend at a time. They inch closer and closer, assuring everybody every inch of the way that they're doing just fine. Here is what God says about people who lead you away from him. And, you know, this is really dramatic. This is really stark. This is really shocking to our sensibilities, which tells us there's something wrong with our sensibilities. Deuteronomy 13, 6-11. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, your soulmate, or your friend who is as your own soul, your BFF, secretly entices you, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are around you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him, Or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. Got that? But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him with stones until he dies because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So shall all Israel hear and fear and not, and not again do such wickedness as this among you. Now, I'm not going to take the time this morning to exegete this whole passage to put it in the full context. This would involve a trial and conviction you're not just you know, picking up a stone and starting this process. But it is talking about how serious this offense is. If your friend, your best friend, or one of your relatives is leading you away from Christ, this is how serious it is. And if you think this is somehow just an Old Testament thing, then uh, you've got to understand that Jesus himself is going to cite this very law uh, to the Pharisees and uh, approvingly. Proverbs 13:20 He who walks with wise men will be wise but the companion of fools will be destroyed. That I mean that by itself ought to be enough to warn every one of us. So, what if your friend is doing things that are bad things? Should you spare them? Should you tell on them? Should you get away from them? Friends don't snitch on friends, do they? Friends don't put their friends in situations like that in the first place. Right? Is that your friend who put you in that position? Love does cover a multitude of sins, but it never covers up sin. Friends do not, real friends do not allow friends to go on sinning. You want to be a true friend? Then you do whatever it takes to help your friend stop sinning, or you either need new friends but something's got to change. If you lose a friend because you spoke up, then that wasn't a friend to begin with. They were phony. Find some real friends that will help you be more Christ-like. How far should you flee fools? Very far. Don't even go in their direction. Again, Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Proverbs 1, 10 and 15, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. Do not, uh, Proverbs 4, 14 and 15, Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. I mean, it's just crystal clear what's to be done. Proverbs 9.6, forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. Proverbs 14.7, go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Is he a Christian? Is she a Christian? Absolutely, without a doubt, no question at all. There's the answer you want, if they're your friends. Now, you can be friendly to all kinds of people. You can have unbelieving friends in that sense. You know the word friend is used in different ways. But I'm talking about the ones that are close to you. Your answer ought to be an unequivocal, yes, my best friends are committed to Jesus Christ. And they ought to be saying the same about you. Ephesians 5, 11-12, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Now, the third response. So, remember, the first response was isolation. God says you were to live in communion and community. second response was to choose bad company. That's rebellion. And now the third and proper response is godly company. Psalm 119.63, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. There is a wise and mature person. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 twelve Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labors, for if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken." God has called his people to live in a community of godly companions, which is primarily the church. The families, if you think of the church this way, the church, our churches, this church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. My church in Nacogdoches, an outpost of the kingdom of God. Your families are then outposts of those outposts. So when you have the benediction and you go home on Sunday and go to your house, The church goes with you. You are the church. Wherever you go, God then spreads you out all over this community. He puts you in all those places to be salt and light. And there in your houses, you have godly companions and you're there laboring to help one another grow in Christ. So that then when you go out individually to work, to interact with neighbors, that you go as a representative of the kingdom of God. And so... Um, God has called us to live in this community of godly companions. We start each week, not the weekend. Sunday is the beginning of the week. And there is nothing you do every week that is any more important than to assemble with God's people to worship, to come to His table, to renew covenant, to regain focus. We're about to start a whole new week on Resurrection Day. We get to start over every week and come to the table and remember who we are and why we're here, and remember who He is and what He's done for us, and then to be sent out the door with His blessing to go to our house and to gather around our tables and to live in communion with one another and to love our neighbors and to love God and to show the world what Jesus said is our love for one another. And by this, all men will know. You're my disciples. We do this in community. And so in the Bible, or so we start each week assembling with the people of God around the family table. And in the Bible we find a kind of continuum, a bad company that degenerates from ignorance to foolishness to wickedness to evil. And one of the key things a godly church community of friends and family provides is doctrine and instruction in the truth so that we can overcome ignorance reproof or correction, which helps us overcome foolishness, and discipline, that removes the wicked man from among yourselves. We need community for these things and also for authority, accountability, example, inspiration. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Redemption is not simply a private matter. We are his people, not just his person. God gives us various covenant relationships, family, church, state, to enable us to provide protection and to be protected, a place where we can grow, back to the hothouse image. This protection is both physical and moral in nature. It guards against threats from the outside and the inside. It is concerned with safety and health and defense of all those who come into this relationship. Is also concerned to establish righteousness and constrain or remove evil. Where does most evil take place, according to the Bible? Alone in the dark. Maybe with two or three other people alone in the dark. But here together in the sunlight, when we come together, we change our behavior, right? We have company over, we change our behavior, we clean the house. We put on our best manners. We understand that we have an obligation to other people that changes who we are. Each covenant member is given both responsibilities and duties which are designed to work toward the mutual benefit of others. The hierarchy within this covenant, when followed, brings order, instruction, and discipline to the body. It is in this company of saints that we find direction and protection. This is an aside, but I'm going to give you an assignment. This is for everybody. But I'd say, young people, you really want to get ahead. You want God to bless you. I'm going to give you a real simple thing to do. If you'll do this every Sunday this year, it will change your life. As you're sitting here during the worship service, if your church is like my church, when after we have the benediction, we have a fellowship meal each week. And what happens is we see everybody begin to break up into their constituent groups, little kids, teenagers, boys, girls, men, women, which is fine. that's the way God made us. We have mutual interest and whatever. But what if you just said, you know, before I go hang out with my friends, as good as they are, I'm going to take five minutes every Sunday to go talk to somebody else in the congregation that I don't know or I don't know very well, or I haven't spoken to in a while. A grown-up, an old person, a man, a woman, a little kid. I'm just going to get somebody in my head, and I'm going to make sure I walk over and say, how are you doing, do you remember me, or uh, whatever. You know what happens in a year? You've had 52 conversations with people. You've made 52 friends. You've had 52 people who probably, if you're a young person and they're an adult, as you walk away after that brief encounter, they're saying in their head, she is a fine young lady. He is an impressive young man. And you know what? I don't know how many friends, if you're on Facebook, which I'm not recommending, I don't know how many friends you got there, but they don't count. These are the ones that count. And you need all the friends you can get, and you don't know when you're going to need them you need all the godly friends you can get. And you don't know when you're going to need them. So get them now. Get them lined up. Get them them together. Make as many as you can. And you can do it in just that little bit of time every week will change. In a year's time, everybody in this church will know you. They'll know your name. They'll know something about you. They'll be praying for you. Little things dramatically change all of this. A word about peers. Take your age and subtract five years. If you're 20, you're now 15. If you're 15, you're now 10. Would you go to that group of peers, that younger group, to get advice, important advice? You're 20, would you go to 15 year olds to get advice? You're 15, would you go to 10 year olds to get advice? Um, why not? You used to go to them. When you were 15, you went to 15-year-olds to get advice, right? Well, you're going to learn more in the next five years than you learned in the last five years, I hope. So why do you get so much of your advice from your current peers? I'm not saying you don't shouldn't get any. Why not get counsel from folks who are older and wiser than you Why not have friends of every age? You know, C.S. Lewis talks about the importance of reading old books. It's not that the old books are always right. It's just that they're usually right in ways that modern books aren't. And so if you have friends of all ages, aren't you going to gain more wisdom? The scriptures say there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. I think the answer is that we usually want to get advice from the people that already agree with what we want to do. So if I just talk to my peers, lo and behold, they agree with me. We really don't want wisdom, we want approval. Once you find a family or two, this is a great thing if you have children, find another family in the church who you respect, who you know loves you, and say, would you mind if I check in with you maybe once a quarter and ask you how I'm doing with my family? How am I doing with my wife or husband? How am I doing with my kids? And would you be willing to hurt my feelings? Tell me the truth. And you can come to me anytime, but would it be all right if I just once a quarter maybe just ask you and you would just tell me? Because I have blind spots. Anybody here have a blind spot? Where are they? Oh, you you don't know, right? Because they're blind spots. Now, If I ask you to point out the blind spots of some of the other people in this church, could you do so? I'm straying off here, but I think this is important. I know something about you. You have talked about everybody else in this church behind their backs. And that's a good thing. It can be a bad thing. It can be gossip. That'd be a sin. But you're supposed to talk about other people. And every one of you have. Every one of you have an opinion. Every one of you see things in other people, but you don't speak up. You don't, now, I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying tomorrow you should go to everybody and point out all their flaws. But what if you had the kinds of friendships and relationships where you could? Do you think we'd all benefit from that? But we're also insecure that we kind of have this unspoken rule. If you won't point out my blind spots, I won't point out yours. what if there's somebody who you knew loved you and that you trusted that you could go to and say, would you help me because I need somebody that can see where I can't see? Isn't that what parents are supposed to do for their kids? We still need that, friends. God put you in a family. He put you in a church. He gave you parents for a reason. He surrounded you with people that know more than you do. In fact, We have something to learn from everyone if we'll only pay attention. And so you need to decide who you are, uh, not just who you are, but who you want to be. I heard somebody said the other day, you're not trying to find yourself. What you're trying to do is make decisions that are going to shape who you are in Christ. You're going to become somebody based upon the decisions you make and the friends you keep. Who do you want to become? Christ is the model. So one last thing I'll mention here, and that is about maturity and romance. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. I'd highly recommend parents that you have your children memorize this in such a way that they can say it almost backwards. I mean, really nail it. This will protect them in regard to this question of future romance. Anybody want to know the will of God? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I want to know the will of God. Well, man, it doesn't get any plainer than this. For this is, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God. Okay, hey, listen. Your ears perk up. Your sanctification, your holiness, your Christlikeness, your maturity, that you should abstain from sexual immorality that you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. What matter? Sexual immorality. In other words, if you've got a boyfriend and a girlfriend and you're madly in love and you think someday we're going to be husband and wife and we're going to be married so it's okay, God says it's not okay. That person does not belong to you yet. That is not your husband and that is not your wife. You belong to Christ. Don't steal from each other. Don't defraud one another. Don't take what is not yours to, to take and don't give what is not yours to give because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified For God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. I'm saying that and saying it strongly because so much of my time as a pastor is spent dealing with the heartache to individuals and families who haven't taken heed to this. And when it comes to those friendships... They're not following Christ. Learn this. Learn the Word of God. Set up the boundary. Your commitment, I'm out of time, I know, but I'm going to run a couple of minutes over here. We're almost done. Jesus is your chief companion. Are you really a follower of Christ? We will know if you love the things that he loves and if you love the people that he loves. Having submitted to the Lordship of Christ, he sends you back to yourself and your family and your possessions to hold them and love them the right way. And I'm going to just close with the lines, uh, the lyrics of a song that I like, and I think it's a great application here to this issue of friendship and our resolve to follow Christ. It's written by Susan Ashton, and the title is There is a Line, L-I-N-E. It's hard to tell just when the night becomes the day, that golden moment when the darkness rolls away, but there is a moment nonetheless in the regions of the heart. There is a place, a sacred charter that should not be erased. It, it is the marrow, the moral core that I cannot ignore. Within the scheme of things, while I know where I stand, my convictions, they define who I am. Some move the boundaries at any cost, But there is a line I will not cross. No riding on the fence, no alibis, no building on the sands of compromise. I won't be borrowed and I can't be bought. There is a line I will not cross. Ask the ocean where the water meets the land, and he will tell you it depends on where you stand. And you're neither right or wrong, but in the fathoms of the soul, that won't ring true. Because truth is more than an imposing point of view. It rises above the changing tide, as sure as the morning sky. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you love us and you tell us the truth. In this case, you tell us the truth about friends, why we need them, and why we need the right kinds of friends, friends that love you, Friends that love us and friends that we can love. Help us, Lord, to renew our commitment in this most essential and vital area so that we might continue to progress and become like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.